Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects, and if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bowbird, and I'd like to thank Bowbird for jumping on board and supporting the show. I've known Nick and Ben, the founders, for years and seen their platform grow from this small startup in Melbourne to now being all over the world, with reach into China, the UK, Europe, and the US. If you've seen other architects and interior designers getting lots of media coverage all over the place and wondered, hey, how do they do that? There's a good chance they're using Bowbird, and that's because many of the best publications in the world source their content through Bowbird, like Wallpaper, Frame, Arc Daily, and many more. It's very easy to use as well. So if you've ever had a project professionally photographed, then you've got everything you need to get started. You just upload your project and start submitting it to your favorite magazines, newspapers, and websites. So if you'd like to find out more, I have a previous episode of the podcast with the co-founder, Ben Morgan, titled Figuring Out the Architectural Media. It's episode 12. Or if you just want to use Bowbird and try it out for yourself, then head over to bowerbird.io. Joining me on the podcast this week is Nikita Morell. Nikita is a copywriter and marketing strategist for architects. And in this special Q&A episode, Nikita and I answer your questions about copywriting, websites, project descriptions, about pages, and much more. We touched on so many different topics. We talked about the mistakes architects make time and time again with their website copy, the key differences between copywriting and other types of architectural writing that you need to be aware of, the steps Nikita takes to help figure out an architect point of difference and how interviews with past clients can be helpful in figuring out your practice's strengths. We also spoke about how you can approach your copy when your practice works across multiple sectors, the best way to approach project descriptions on your website, what to put on your about page and why it's important to talk about what your practice believes in or stands for. We also touched on some simple tips that you can use to help you write in a more human tone of voice, as well as why it's important to talk about your process and explain it in your own terms. So there's a heap of content there for you to learn from. I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Nikita Morell. Nikita, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Um, This is actually one of my favorite, probably my most listened to um, architecture firm podcast. So... (laughs) Definitely feels very good and I feel very um, honoured to be here. Thank you so much. Well, there's only like three architecture firm podcasts in the world, so I'm, gl- so I'm glad to make it into the top. Thank you so much. Um, I love these episodes where I have like other uh, marketing kind of uh, cop consultants, experts, advisors, people that can come on to talk uh, to like the other side of it as well, not just from like the architect's perspective. So, yeah, it's really, really awesome. We actually did do an interview like I think – was just over a year ago, um, like maybe yeah. just before COVID. And uh, people that at the end of this, if they want to hear like more Nikita, go back and probably listen to that one and also other things that you've done. But um, yeah, so today's episode is a Q&A episode, right? So we got some questions in from people. We've also planted some questions of our own. So the second half of the episode, we're going to be going through those. But to start things off, I thought it'd be a good idea to maybe... Talk a little bit. I'm, I'm kind of interested in terms of your 
sort of process, um, some of your processes as a copywriter and when you're doing those projects, right? And when you're working with clients, because I think that there might be something interesting that people can learn from in terms of, you know, what maybe some of the steps look like. Um, and also like sort of seeing kind of how what you do works because like personally, I, I haven't worked with a copywriter. I'm not exactly sure what the process kind of looks like. Um, so I thought maybe we'd start off by, I guess, touching on some of the kind of challenges in the architecture industry when it comes to copywriting. Um, and I'm sort of thinking about like the things that people come to you with or architects come to you with when they say we need help. Like what is the main, I guess, like what is the main brief that you get as a copywriter from, from architects that are approaching you? Yeah, it's a great question. So I guess, I mean, the, one of the biggest things I hear is that they're finding it hard to um, either find something that can differentiate them, um, but pretty much it's just getting clarity in their message. Like they know that they're adding value to project, projects, but they just don't know how to say that in words. Um, so that's a big part um, of what I do. Um, and as you just mentioned before about the process, um, just to be clear from the outset, a copywriter you know, as a copywriter, I'm not a design journalist. I'm not a design writer. Um, copywriting really is underpinned by psychology, um, you know, techniques like normalizing and future pacing and things like that, um, but also marketing. Um, you know, it's understanding that ideal clients. So it's not just kind of banging out words. A lot of my, you know, architects come to <laughs> oh me. Oh, my goodness. Shots <laughs> fired at the architectural writers. Um, that's a really great point, though, and such a good thing to, to bring up because there are a lot of architectural writers that they're, they're often the people that, like, when you open up the architecture magazine, it's like words by X person, right, a lot of the time, yeah. who are writing those articles. And sometimes, I think there is a lot of confusion and it's really great that you bring it up because it's like, I need someone to think about my website copy or blog posts or something like something more on the marketing side, but they're like, oh, we work with this really good writer that, that has worked on a few articles like for a magazine with us. Right? Sometimes there's, a, there's like this confusion. So it'd be great if you could like go into that a little bit yes. more, I guess, like those differences, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly, Dave. And as you said, you know, um, the one of the my little pet he um, peeves is when people say, "Oh, you know, Karen, she's really good with words. Yeah. Um, we're just going to let yeah. her write it." So, look, and I'm not dissing like design journalists. Definitely, I mean, you you guys are amazing at telling stories and that. But with copywriting, it really is. Um, you know, I tell architects, I say every single word matters. You know, just like every millimeter of your blueprint matters. That's exactly how much every word matters. So. The aim of a copywriter is for really to get people to read your words and to take some sort of an action. So when it comes to your website, that action could be picking up the phone and scheduling, you know, a consultation. It could be signing up to your newsletter or viewing your project page or portfolio. So it's taking action um, to get to that next kind of step. Yeah, that's such a great um, answer. So in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, the brief that they're coming to you with or the architects coming to you with. And I hear this like all the time is kind of like, we're having trouble like figuring out our message, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's all about our message, but, but you're also talking about like taking action, right? So it's, it's not like I, I, I'd be interested to, to hear if this kind of happens for you, but I, I feel like architects don't say my problem isn't, it's like people aren't taking action. Like they don't define that as the problem. They just define it as like, it just doesn't feel like we have like almost a clear sense of like who we are, what we're putting out there, like what we should be putting. Out. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. it's, it seems to be on that sort of self like identity of the like brand identity issues, right? Like do, does that tend to come up more than like 
we're looking for real specific like results in terms of uh, in terms of action taking, which is kind of like what you sort of think about a lot when you're working on the process. Yeah, you're completely right. Like no one ever has come to me and said I need, you know, I might get, um, oh, look, we're not getting the right types of projects yeah. in the door mm-hmm. or we're just like saying yes to ones that aren't a great fit because we need to, you know, keep our cash flow going. I get a lot of that. And that, again, it all comes back to how do you get more of these right clients. But, yeah, I mean, Definitely identity is a huge thing. Um, a lot of them, you know, and I've, I've heard you, Dave, talk about this a lot. I think you once said, um, you know, that famous quote of being inside that glass yeah. jar you said on one of your episodes, you know, you, you're too close to your practice um, to see your identity sometimes. Um, so, yeah, definitely I think that and just finding what does differentiate me, like from my competitor or even not just other architects but builders and drafts I think architects forget sometimes that they're not just competing against other architects I mean even doing nothing is an option you know so how do we get people to to take some sort of an action um yeah so when you're saying doing nothing is an option you're talking about like actual inaction like deciding you know what maybe we can just live in the house as it is for the next five years (laughs) like we can just put up with it like that's actually your competition as well as other architects as well as non-architects and stuff like that a hundred percent yeah Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, In terms of like that process of sort of defining the business and the point of difference and everything like that, you know, sometimes like when a practice comes to me and talks about that, I sometimes feel like that might be early and maybe there's a bit too early to be talking to me. Maybe there's somebody else you, somebody else you should be talking to. Cause it's not so much about marketing strategy or like go to market, like, which is my own sort of personal thing, but like, it's more like, who are we as a brand? And I, I kind of get a little bit like frightened off by that sometimes, <laughs> like building that brand identity. Cause I'm like, Oh, that's like a very, that, can, that feels to me like it could be quite an intensive process, but I guess like I'm interested in your comments on that in terms of like, is that something that you feel is sort of a core, like a really core part of like your method and your process with clients? Like it's a fundamental of the process or is it something that maybe practices should maybe work on and think through and mull over maybe a little bit before they like engage a professional to help them to sort of express that publicly? Yeah, and look, it's a great question because every copywriter, I guess, approaches it differently. But for me, especially working just for architects, um, I have created quite a rigorous process, just like, you know, I'm sure your audience have a quite a rigorous design process. Mine's very much the same and a huge part of it. And that's why I kind of said up front, like I just don't bang out words is a massive part of it is research. So I'll actually like, if you don't mind, like I'll just quickly step you through my process, you know, Um, for example, um, even if a client says, can you just write one project description for me? I usually turn them away and say, no, hang on, we haven't laid down the foundations. And and I do that because I'm, they're not going to get the best out of me and we're not going to nail the words. Um, So what, you know, step one, is I send them a questionnaire and sometimes, you know, it's a long questionnaire and architects roll their eyes at me and say, oh gosh, you know, sometimes I've done this work before, but I promise you like some, my best feedback after the whole, I've written the whole website, they always like refer back to that questionnaire because it really gets them to think deeply about their practice. And, you know, I chuck in some fun questions like if, if you're, um, practice was a drink what would it be you know open to interpretation and and things like that just to get their brand personality out um and then so they they fill that in then 
The second step is they send it back and we have a discovery workshop. So that usually goes for an hour and a half. Um, and we just, I just drill them. And I do, I have <laughs> made people feel very uncomfortable. You know, for example, they're saying to me, um, you know, we want to be known for our innovation. I'm like, cool. What do you mean by that? And they'll say something. I'm like, no, no, what do you mean by that? And I just <laughs> yeah, keep yeah, yeah, digging yeah. until they're just like squirming in yeah. their seat, you know? Um, and then I guess the third component, which is something that a lot of the time gets missed and it is a bit of a, it's a time-consuming task on my part, but I go and I interview sometimes up to, you know, five to 10 of their past clients that they've worked with. Um, and so, you know, I, I record those conversations, I transcribe them, I turn them into testimonials. But also the reason I do that is because, again, sometimes people are too close, they don't know their own strengths. So it's like an objective opinion. But I do that also to see what kind of language their, I, their past clients are using. So if they want more of those clients, you know, instead of using all these kind of archie speak and whatever, I try and use that same language because that's what's going to resonate. Yeah. Um, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so it's a huge part of the process. In other words, <laughs> like, like those, like those steps, it's interesting. When, uh, like when you were one part that was kind of quite cool there was when you're talking about how we'll, we'll some, some sort of concept will come up like innovation or something. And then you sort of get, um, drill down into it a little bit more and you realize, oh, actually maybe that's like, what, like, what do you actually mean by that? That doesn't currently re really have like a clear meaning in terms of what you actually do or like how that's real. It's maybe just kind of a thought, but what's, what's sort of behind that, um, is, or is it, is it about kind of thinking about, well, actually, is there a better way of explaining it? Like maybe it, maybe you're kind of communicating it as innovation, but maybe it should be explained in a more kind of like, I, do you kind of get what I'm getting at? <laughs> yeah, 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 no. Again, I completely understand. And I think you're, you're kind of spot on in what you say. Like, I don't mind them using the term innovation if that's what they think it is, but then let's define yeah. it. Like, what does innovation mean for you, like, mean yeah. for your practice? Or sustainability is another one that always comes up. Like, okay, that's cool. Happy to use that term if that's what you want, but what does it mean to you? And that's kind of where it's a, it's a cool, I guess, writing device because you can really shape it to mean whatever you yeah. want. Um, do you do you sometimes yeah. find that when you like peel away those layers a little bit that sometimes you're working with a practice and you find that, you know, maybe when you really get down to it, there actually isn't that much there that we, we almost are starting from scratch <laughs> in terms of sort of marketable value in this brand in terms of we actually need to have a discussion maybe in terms of creating from new, maybe like a new way of doing things. So I'm just kind of curious because sometimes I find like a lot of the things that come up first tend to be the same things that everybody tends to come up with. Like a lot of practices sort of say the same things about themselves. And I sort of wonder once you dig a bit deeper into it, you kind of go like, is that actually really like, can you really hang your hat on that? Is that really even usable? Um, I don't know. Do you ever get those kinds of situations? I know we're really just like talking shop now. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Um, yeah, like a lot of the time. And that's why I like to interview past clients yeah. or, you know, past stakeholders or someone who's worked with them kind of because then I'll sometimes in the conversation because this, I usually interview them after the discovery session. I'll be like, hey, so the firm thinks that X, Y, Z, like what do you think of oh, that? Oh, cool. And, um, so you're like cross-examining. Yeah, they'll be like, oh, no. And kind of going like, was that total <laughs> BS when they say they do this? And then they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. they do do this other thing which we thought was really cool. Like so that can come up. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, like for example, I'm working on some copy now and um, without giving too much away, but this firm, like they didn't once really mention that they were, you know, good listeners, for example. And then I interviewed, like I'm now up to the fifth interview of one of their past clients and every single interview starts off with, oh my God, they are amazing at listening. And I, you just think like, I wouldn't have, they didn't tell me that. So if I'd stopped the process there, then I would never have got to this, you know, so weaving that into the copy as well. Yeah. Yep. That's really, really interesting. Okay, cool. So um, I guess like, so you've talked about the process and I guess where you, where you kind of start in terms of untangling it. And those client interviews are really interesting. Um, It's, I've barely ever come across a practice that's like interviewed their past clients because mm. it's it's sometimes difficult to have that independence to to do that like a third part a third party can do that for you a little bit more comfortably but to actually go through that process yourself like I know personally in terms of talking to pa- past clients and getting feedback I'm incredibly thin skinned <laughs> and I'm like terrified of finding out what they think about me and like I know that a lot of people I like struggle with that too even when you know your clients are like happy and really, really like they, you did a great job for them. You still are like, I don't really want to hear them talking about me. I have the same problem if I get like a website audit or a usability thing. I don't like watching those and seeing that stuff. So um, like, I think that's an interesting process that not many people either, either do with a professional or even like really do themselves. But is it something that, you know, you recommend or kind of like think is kind of uh, can be very, very helpful by the sounds of it? Oh, a hundred percent. Like even, I mean, Dave, like with what you do with marketing strategy, um, you know, you want to know where your ideal clients are hanging out because you want to get in front of them there. Right. So how do you, like a lot of my clients ask, well, how do I know this? Like, how do I find this out? And really, yes, of course you can troll the internet, Reddit, whatever, but at the end of the day, you're only going to get real answers from your ideal clients, like from clients you've worked with. You want more of them, ask them, what are you reading? What are you listening to? Um, yep. So same goes with copy, like understanding what kind of language they want and speak and, yeah. Do you, if, if, if you're kind of mapping out ideal clients with, um, with, with an architect that you're working with, um, is it kind of comforting when that ideal client is like already a subset of their existing clients? Like they can already point to clients we've already worked with and gone, yeah, they were amazing and awesome. They're definitely an ideal client versus going, we haven't really worked with anybody that fits this profile of what we want. We've got this like kind of grass is greener vision of like this client out there that we've personally never met, but I'm sure they're there. Like, I guess in the way I'm framing the question, you could say maybe it's a bit biased, but um, I'm just like interested in terms of thinking about, is it better to look back on your clients than look out and sort of imagine this like persona? Yes, definitely. And look, obviously you're in an advantageous place if you've had as you said you've had those types of clients yeah. so if you're an emerging firm you're just starting out you don't but definitely like I mean one of the questions I ask in my questionnaire is if you had to pick one client to clone you yeah, know one over specific and over, client yep gotcha yeah over and over again, who are they and why? Um, so yeah definitely because I mean if you're just dreaming up do they even exist? Who knows? Yeah, you, you you can paint yourself any kind of picture you want of like a potential client. But, you know, I, I bring up the question because it happens quite a lot. <laughs> I yes. find there's a lot of ideal clients of, that we're looking for, but like they're kind of, yeah, they're kind of this like uh, knight in shining armor type client that is <laughs> going to come along. This like, yeah, this unicorn. Um, but and, and that kind of brings up another question in my mind, which is that like when when you're coming into the process, like sometimes I guess a practice is kind of looking to 
start from scratch. Maybe they're like a 15 year old brand and like everything's out of date. And they're like, you know, we used to word of mouth it. And now we're realizing like times are changing and we need to get like more kind of up to speed. Like there's that group. Mm. And with that, you're probably going like, okay, like let's just kind of overhaul. But then on the other side, there's brands that are probably your role is kind of more of a improvement or like a, a, just a, just kind of a next step. Right. Like, I just, I guess I kind of wonder about this idea of like starting from starting over again versus mm-hmm. kind of like reviewing and improving. Um, and what sort of portion of different projects, like does it go one way or the other for you generally? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I actually stopped. I used to offer editing services where I would take your website and kind yeah, of edit gotcha. what you had. And I've, I've stopped that because I found like it just gets too messy. Um, and then it's kind of going against everything I stand for in terms of getting that strong brand voice, brand, like brand messaging work done up front. So yeah, I definitely, when it comes to copy, if that's what you're talking about, I mean, if your brand has equity and it's already got like some awareness then it's a harder thing, but when you're talking about copy, definitely, I think kind of burning it to the ground and starting fresh is always the way to go. Um, yeah. I think like when you use that super fired up word, bang out words, um, I think that just like sort of <laughs> sells it because I think there is this perception sometimes that like, I need to get a writer to write the words because the words need to be produced because the website needs words mm. or the media kit needs words or something needs words. And it's just like, <laughs> it's so bad. Like this kind of like box ticking kind of mentality around it, or I guess like such a big kind of missed opportunity. And I, I think, I think sometimes the editing can be a bit like that too. Um, but yeah, so we won't dwell on that because that's obviously not great, but um, not the right, <laughs> not the right approach. But um I guess I, it's funny. I have so many questions for you before we get into the questions of the Q and A, but like <laughs> this one in particular, I'm just interested in, I suppose, what you think kind of, what, what makes for good copy in architecture? I know it's a very like broad mm-hmm. philosophic, like, I don't know, it's a very broad question, but I guess like in terms of, as opposed to maybe other industries, like if we're thinking like e-commerce or we're thinking other types of design or we're thinking just like other kinds of other, other industries, like what are the, what are maybe the factors or qualities that makes for extra good copywriting in this space, in your opinion? Like, is it easy to read, persuasive, specific, like all of the above, like, is there a particular kind of characteristic that when, when you see it, um, in all the websites that you look at and work on that you're like, ah, like that's exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. And it's, it's a good question. And I think it actually goes, obviously, as it, all those things you said, it has to be, you know, simple, very specific. Um, but I think one thing, and this is, I think, good copy across the board, whether you're in e-commerce or that, like whatever industry you're in, I think good copy is good copy. And I think for me personally, it is how your words sound. Like when you're, like when we're reading things, we normally usually hear a voice in our head and it's kind of like how it sounds. And I think it's this consistency of voice. So if you're reading something and then you hop onto another page on your website, or if you're, it's a submission doc and you flip the page, like if everything has a certain, like that builds trust, right? If everything sounds the same um, and has that consistent voice, I think that's really helpful. And I think that is, yeah, what builds credibility, builds trust. Um, and to get to that point, I usually think when it comes to architecture, a good starting point um, is just writing like you speak, having that, because and that's another little hack I, I often use as well. I pull up Google, you know, that voice to type tool and I just kind of yeah. talk at my computer. So, you know, that blinking curse is gone and it's just, you've got something to go off, but just, yes, yeah, simple writing like you speak. Um, 
Does yeah. that make sense? I mean, yeah. I know that can be taken out of context and people, you know, obviously um, you don't want to go too far, but it's got that conversational tone. You know, you're not trying to be professional. Um, you can be professional and have personality. So yeah, it's always challenging to write the way you speak, but it's quite easy to read your writing and see if it reads the way you speak, like read exactly. it aloud and go, do I speak that way? Like, would I actually talk like that to a client if they were sitting across the, you know, the boardroom table from me or would yeah. that sound really weird and kind of awkward if I was talking that way? Like it is, it is kind of challenging. I, I personally find that um, depending on what I'm reading, I tend to get like swayed into different tones of voices, <laughs> which yeah. is, you know, use the word consistency, which is so key. Um, it's, it's kind of quite hard to be consistent over time in the way you write. But I guess like, um, you know, I had a I had a guest on the podcast. Um, it was Emma Brain at Fulcrum Agency, and she was talking about when she writes copy before she does it, like before she does her social media posts and all these things in the newsletter. She like she she like takes on this like um, like alter ego of an Instagram account in Fremantle in Western Australia. This small business owner she follows that she really likes, and and she thinks to herself like, what would this person write? <laughs> you know, she tries yes. to get into this like kind of mental space before she sits down and kind of puts pen to paper, right? Like, I guess it's hard to be a professional copywriter and to master this skill, but like in terms of, um, in terms of little tricks like that, that can make it a little bit easier for like everyday people to kind of think, think about this more. You mentioned like recording the voice, but, but also is there any value in kind of maybe modeling yourself or trying to emulate someone else? I know that sounds kind of a little unusual, but what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I've spoken to copywriters who create whole Spotify playlists to kind of get into that that feel of... Yeah, how do you set the mood exactly. <laughs> for a tone and, of voice? Yeah, and um, I mean, I often, and this is, <laughs> this is a bit weird, but I sometimes, you know, if my client tells me this is the ideal client who I'm going after, um, I'll go and get like an image of someone off the internet and just like stick it up on my wall. Oh my because goodness, yeah. Every, yeah, whenever you're writing, you want to be writing to one person. So whether it's yep. an email, whether it's website copy, a blog, you've got to keep just you're not writing for everyone you're writing for one person so if you feel like you're just writing to them or sometimes actually um this is also a bit weird but i'll write dear eric for example and then write on my copy oh so, that's awesome yeah yeah like i i feel like i'm writing to him and then at the end i just delete that eric part and yeah. um I've, yeah i've written to one person so i know that eric oh, is going to resonate with this that's a great idea um i my way of doing that like and i think even people that are like marketing, I don't profess to be like an expert copywriter, but I need these things. Otherwise, I would just write in this really weird way, although yeah. I already do. But like little things like this are super helpful. Like, for example, if I'm writing a blog post, I usually come up with the blog post based on I think back, I look at my calendar and I think back at a conversation I had in the last couple mm -hmm. of weeks with, I go through each conversation. I think, was there something I could, that I, that I explained to a client there that I could now like re basically just rewrite what I said to them from memory into yeah. this article. And then I'm writing the article to them. I'm actually thinking of that client at that time, like that architect I was speaking to. If I don't do that, I get very, uh, I get very directionless in terms of mm -hmm. how I write it. Do I write it kind of funny, not so serious. Do I like, I, I try on all these different hats and it ends up being kind of awkward. Whereas if I'm thinking about that particular person, I just think, how did I explain it to them when I was talking to them? And then it's just easier to just write it down in this really matter of a matter of fact way. It's not super hard to find that, that tone that is kind of consistent with how I would normally explain it. So 
I don't know. Is that that's I I feel like any any trick you can find that just works for you like that is key. I wonder, are there any, um, it's always a tough question to be like, are there any good books on this? But I wonder like in terms of just tone of voice as like an area, do you think there are maybe not necessary books, but podcasts, resources, you've got a great memory for this sort of thing, Nikita. So <laughs> are there anything in particular in the tone of voice side that you think is, is useful? One guy who is great, and again, he's not in the architecture space, but he is, well, he's a good friend of mine and he is known for tone of voice, is his name is Justin Blackman. Cool. Um, go on. His website is hilarious, um, and I think he has um, some free resources on his website, but he's a really good starting point um, because he'll show you the tricks and hints exactly of how to get that tone of voice right. Um, so yeah, start with Justin. Awesome. Um, we'll put that in the notes for sure. Um, let's talk about SiteSmart because we, up until now, we've been talking about kind of done for you copywriting and like working, you know, working with clients in that way. But recently you've also been doing a kind of a cohort based group copywriting kind of done with you kind of approach where we're doing it together and using templates and zoom calls and all this sort of stuff. Um, How's that been going? Have you started? Has your first, co- has your first, what are you up to with your first cohort? Did you guys finish? Are you midway? Like what's going on? Yeah. So we're actually, we had our last call last week and now for the next two weeks, everyone has to submit their homework, oh which is submit goodness. their copy <laughs> that they've been writing for the 12 weeks. So just quickly, the way it works yeah. is so Site Smart is a 12 week accelerator. So there's 10 of 10 spots and like all um, oh, the group is filled with some amazing, amazing architects. As you can imagine, they are just super open-minded and forward thinking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so over the 12 weeks, um, every second week, I kind of release a module. So we've worked through about pages, biographies, project descriptions, but the whole point is just to get this website done because I know a lot of architects like to put on the back burner, <laughs> which is fair yeah. enough. Um, it's not, you know, the most super exciting thing, but yeah, um, everyone's submitting their copy for critique. Um, and then now over the next month, I will go through and give recommendations on how to improve um, and do all that as well. So that's super exciting. And then, so yeah. are they actually going to build those websites like in Squarespace and stuff or Wix or like what is, or is it like working mostly, um, is it outside like with a prototype or something like that? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we focus mainly on the messaging, right, the copy yeah. and okay, messaging, gotcha. um, but I've given them, like we've got masterclasses in SEO, yeah. um, masterclass in website design for architects. So cool. yeah, they get all the resources to do that. A lot of them have already got websites or some of them are actually building from scratch. So um, I help them with that process too. Awesome. So, um, yeah. it's, it's interesting to see architects like together, sort of discussing and brainstorming and sharing because mm-hmm. there really isn't a lot of um, like apart from the occasional like archie team thing or institute thing, like there's not that many uh, things where architects get together and talk about marketing or business um, and it's always interesting when they do. How are you finding the like group dynamic and were they quickly able to overcome <laughs> that resistance around talking about their marketing problems in front of other architects? Yeah, it's funny because I launched the course and I had asked some architects, you know, should I put a Slack group? Will they even use it? Is it going to be just this like, you know, crickets, no one's going to go on. It's going to be super awkward. Um, But I got the group together and once everyone signed up, I said, look, what do you think of this Slack group? Um, And everyone, um, especially I'm... I know a lot of your listeners are Australian based, but a lot of the US um, yeah. architects were quite on board and into it. So I started up this Slack group and it's been great. Like, I guess 
Um, so the calls are every fortnight. So in between the calls, everyone jumps on, shares. Um, so there was a little bit of resistance at the start and I had to push it quite hard. Um, but now, funny, like, because we had our last call, I was like, okay, well, this group, like, what do you want me to do with it? Like, shut it down once this all compliment. <laughs> and they were all like, no, 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 keep it open. Like, we've made some friends. I was like, good. Oh, my goodness. We've set up <laughs> secret channels that you're not part of. Like, <laughs> how exciting. And then when you do, like, another cohort, they're going to probably come into the same Slack and, like, everyone's just going to be, you know, mingling. It'll be amazing. Um, yes. That's that's really, really cool. I, I guess, like, the motivational side of, you know, you mentioned that these projects are 12 weeks, um, you know, it's 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 uh, being, like, keeping on top of that and doing that and getting and meeting those deadlines and not getting, you know, um, abandoning the process halfway through and being, like, I'm too busy. Like, that's a real struggle. Like, um, what what have you noticed about maybe comparing when you're kind of working with a client individually versus in a group? Are you finding that the motivation levels are a little bit higher there in the group setting because there's that kind of commitment or any difference you're noticing? Is it better to do things as a group? Yeah, I definitely have seen... Um yeah, like I guess that peer kind of, oh, okay, you've written your tagline or his mine kind of thing. Oh, so competitiveness. Oh, my goodness. A little bit. Um, <laughs> I mean, not competitive. It's more just like, yeah, comparing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. notes. Um, but I guess, yeah, that is, I, that's the, the greatest thing is like, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm not an architect. I've, I've never been one. I just don't have what it takes. But to have architects in the same room, like a lot of them have been in similar situations or they've come across the same roadblocks when writing. So they're like, oh, this is what, I did or so definitely almost the group's taken a life of its own um, when I'm not even part of it and they're giving each other advice. Oh um, yeah, I mean, there was, there has been obviously like in any type of group, some that have just, yeah, deadlines have come up. I think one lady um, felt pregnant. Like there's like all yeah. these different life events. Um, but I guess the beauty of it is because it is such a small group, I've been able to email them outside of it and say, hey, how are you tracking? Want to set up a one-on-one call? So it is quite tangible, I guess, yeah. um, they're getting feedback throughout. So, yeah. It's good to do the whole process in a kind of in, intense way, like to increase the intensity quite a lot. Like I, I find that a lot of the um, a lot of the reason that a lot of architects marketing is not working so well is because their intensity level is at about like a 0.5 out of 10, <laughs> like in terms of like every single person says, these are my problems or these are the issues in my marketing. But then they get to the question on my survey or my questionnaire, which is like, and how much time are you actually spending on marketing at the moment? And they're like, zero time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like having having that sort of um, incentive and that commitment to just go, you know what, for the next 12 weeks, we are just going to like absolutely smash this project out and do it. And then, you know, like get onto it. I think that's, I think that's terrific um, to do it in that way. Um, should we get into should we get into some Q&A? We have so many yes. questions. It's taken us half an hour to go through six of mine. Now we've got about 30 other ones. So let's go. If you like what you're hearing so far, please share this episode with colleagues you think would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. Just head to ratethispodcast.com slash Dave and pick your favorite podcast app. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on an upcoming episode. So we got this one in. 
I'm interested in hiring a copywriter for my website and for media kit content, but I don't know where to begin. Copywriters seem to be the hidden ninjas in the background. Their names aren't usually credited or listed. I'd like to find someone who specializes in architecture and design. How do I find these people other than doing a basic search on LinkedIn? And what qualifications should I be looking for? Well, this is Stacey. Stacey, you found the perfect episode because now you found Nikita. But aside from that, I mean, what is what is what are, what would your tips be um, in terms of you know, um, I guess like finding copywriters and what to look for, how to pick. I mean, do you, it's uh, it's an interesting question for you to answer, Nikita. But I'd love to get your take. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, you can always do that thing of, you know, cold outreach. And you can always, if you find a website who you just love their copy, you know, always just send an email and just say, hey, look, I love your copy. You know, everyone loves to get their ego massaged a little bit and then just say, love to know who your copywriter is. Um, I mean, that's one easy and very direct way. Um, But as you said, um, like Googling, there aren't, a lot of us out there, but um, even just, you know, contacting someone like Dave and saying, do you have any contact um, contacts? Um, so people in, who might not be in the copywriting space, but in maybe the architecture marketing space, maybe they know people um, as well. But what um, in the second part of your question, you know, you said what qualification should I be looking for in a copywriter? Yeah. And this, is, this is quite important. I mean, um, obviously I'm biased, but I do think someone who has written for maybe not, just the architecture, but maybe property or construction or real estate, but someone who has a basic level of understanding of how the design process works or just the built environment. Um, Because why I say that is because if if you go with a generic copywriter, they have a lot of knowledge about everything, but you're going to have to skill them up. Whereas if you go with someone who's had experience in this field, they've already got that base level knowledge. Um, So they can probably go deeper much quicker for you. Um, But again, some other things to look out for is look at their research. You know, what do they actually do before they start writing? Um, And, you know, what is their understanding of psychology and um, persuasive writing techniques as well? So, yeah. Yeah, that's a really um, good point. I think I think one of the benefits of working, okay, we're both talking our own book here, but working with uh, somebody who specializes in the space is that like you have that pattern recognition of knowing what's important and what isn't when we when we when we're hearing it. So if you're if you, if the first thing you say to your copywriter is, oh well, we're very award winning, they might go, oh my goodness, award winning, that's incredible. <laughs> like we should definitely make our copy about that. Like if they're from the outside, right? Potentially, yeah. they may not they, they may not have had any conversations with architects before and realized like, oh, that's actually kind of like a bit of an everybody thing. So like, um, so, so knowing like what is, what, uh, is, is kind of cool and what isn't is good. Um, part two of a question as a small, um, as a small firm, the cost of a copywriter is an important thing to consider for my, for my baseline. How do copywriters charge for their work? And are there any, um, are there any sort of simpler, I guess, versions of copywriting service that they could offer a smaller firm for a smaller fee. So, I mean, it's almost like this question from this listener is like asking for a quote, which is funny, but, um, but I guess in terms of, you know, just in terms of how copywriters charge for their work, maybe just that part of the question will be, um, will be kind of interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, look, there's two camps that copywriters and, um, both each have their own view. Like there are copywriters who charge by the word, um, word length and then there's also copywriters like myself who um charge by the project um because yeah so there's two different types and look um if you don't have the budget um, a lot of copywriters offer like audits which is a good way to start which is a bit more cost effective um which in which case they're just telling you how to improve um rather than rewriting for you so yeah 
Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And also um, many copywriters do offer other kinds of sort of products and services or like more productized services as well yeah. um, or templates or resources or, or workshops. So there's a lot of um, alternatives as well to, to sort of uh, get started. Okay, so the question is, would you recommend um, opening a new profile, so this is um, in reference to Instagram, for promoting my architectural work or do you think personal accounts work better for architects? So, um, you know, she doesn't know if she should promote her work on a personal account, which she already has some audience, or should she open a new account um, since she's just starting out? So it's it's a bit of a tough call, isn't it? Um, it depends. If your personal account has 35 followers, um, then whatever, you're pretty close to the start anyway. If you've already built up like a pretty big audience, then what you can potentially do is just transition your personal account into your company account, like switch the name, switch the photo and just post and say, hey, from now on, I'm, I'm going to be like my company. Um, and that, then that way you don't have to create a new account from zero, which is like absolutely not what you want to be doing in 2021. That is a, you are asking for the biggest grind of your life, trying to grow an account nowadays (laughs) from zero, like come back in six years when you're at 80 followers. So like not, not exactly what I'd recommend. Um, but the, I guess the question, and I think this is kind of the copywriting element or like the, the brand element, like, is it? If you can be like a personal brand, if you sort of envisage your practice as being kind of at a really small scale where it might just like literally be you anyway, like is it maybe better to just be a personal brand on social media? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I I think you've got – if you've got a personal brand, I mean, and your name can be attached to your practice name, I mean, it's giving it credibility in it anyways. And I think I've always said, and I actually put a post on LinkedIn just a couple of days ago saying that you aren't your practice, you are the people behind your practice. So I think the more you can create that emotional connection um, to the people and to, to you, then um, the better you are, I guess, um, positioned moving forward because like, remember, just Instagram is just part of your funnel. It's just one way to get in, right? Yeah, yeah totally. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely two sides to the coin. I think, like, on the one hand, if you spoke to um, a, a business coach like um, Ray, who's been on the podcast, uh, or, or really any business coach, they would stress the importance of building your business as its own independent entity and not seeing it as, like, your hobby or, like, whatever, like, yeah. building a yeah. company, um, thinking long-term about what you're going to do to exit the company and how it's going to operate and it's going to have employees and stakeholders and shareholders and all this stuff. If that's like the way you think about it, then I think like you owe it to it to it have its own independence and to have its own kind of stuff and go through that struggle. But then on the marketing side, mm. um, guys like Gary Vee would always say people want to follow people, not brands. And yeah. But we also do want to follow brands that kind of have people behind them, as, as you're kind of pointing out, Nikita, and feel like yeah. they're coming from people and kind of can read the, temp, read the mood on social media that it is maybe a little bit more social at times. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's a tough call, but look, maybe, maybe just switch it up so that you don't have to build an audience from zero. I think everyone can kind of agree on that. Um, cool. So looking at the next question, how do I write for one ideal client if my practice is serving different sectors or servicing different sectors, such as residential, commercial, hospitality, healthcare, like there are many multi-sector firms. Like, so how do you, how do you do that, Nikita? Like, how do you make that work? This is a super common problem that a lot of practices deal with. 
Yeah, and look, architects do not like my answer to this question because I just say you need to be picking one. Like you cannot write to a homeowner who wants a renovation the same way you, you write to a property developer who wants a multi-res building. Like they've both got different needs. They both have different objectives, problems, challenges, all the rest. So you need to be talking to them as, I, as we had that conversation before about speaking directly to one person. So to overcome this, um, usually, I mean, like – I've recommended to some clients to have almost like two micro sites. So you enter on one page and it's like you make them choose, you know, I'm looking for a renovation or I want a multi, like make them go into two almost like micro sites. Um, it can be a lot of work that because you're almost producing two websites in itself. Or um, another way around it is have services pages where you really have that, where you're talking to that one client that wants that one type of service. Um but look, there's no way around it. And the biggest thing is I almost see it like a bowling alley. You know, you've got your front pin. Just pick one thing, like one expertise, master it. You're not, you don't have to get married to it. Like it's not forever. Just pick it, knock it down and then choose the next. And then you would have built up that kind of expertise. People know you as the expert. So they're going to be like, oh, hey, um, I saw you did this. Do you do this type of project? You know, um, I don't know, Dave, what do you think? I'm with you on service pages um, yeah. big time. That would be my answer for this. And I think that they're not just a compromise or like a solution to a problem. Like they're actually a lot better than just having one sort of general piece of copy for everybody, I think, because we can get a bit more specific. Like we had an episode of this podcast with Office S&M where we spoke quite a bit at the end about their service pages, which are just like killer. Theirs were for councils, developers and homeowners what are you going to say to all three of those people <laughs> that's going to work? Very, very different messages. But once they had those pages that were very easy to get to, they weren't difficult to navigate, um, really, really easy for people to go, oh, that's the page I should head to and just read the stuff there. So, um, yeah, so I think that's usually a pretty good way to do it. But I think like I think the question also just comes down to that about page copy, which let's if we did have like service pages then what does our about page copy need to do like that two paragraphs that are sitting there next to the photo of us as a team all looking cute super cute like what does it talk about because we've got copy elsewhere now that's kind of talking to like you're here because you want to achieve this and these are your problems and this is our process i guess like does it does it yeah, that would be a kind of a question. I guess it would depend, but but what do you what do you think in that situation where you have pinpointed these groups on separate places? How does the about copy or what role does it play at that point? So the about page is just about your your firm in terms of like it just communicates really clearly the value you're bringing to this project. So overall, so it's kind of like that one thing you stand for. And as we were saying before, yeah. like why should clients choose you? And Really, it I, I really, you know, a bit of a hack is just to kind of write a we believe statement. We believe X, Y, Z, you know, kick it off with that because I think that always it hooks the reader in, you know, and especially that word believe is such a, like, it's such a loaded word. You're just already emotionally connected yeah. to what these people believe in. Um, so it is, yeah, it's very much about the firm as a whole. Um, you know, a lot of firms do that. We were founded in blah, blah, blah. We've got this many years experience. All that is great in your about page, but go the step further. Instead of just saying we have 25 years experience, cool, so what? You know, we have 25 years experience, which means we've seen it all. You know, we've come and overcome heaps of challenges or it means that we're really well connected with contractors and builders. So what, yeah, it's. Yeah. Yeah. No, gotcha. Yeah. No, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, next question. What's the best way to write project descriptions? I think this is a really, 
open question. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? So what is the best way to write project descriptions? I guess we're, uh, firstly, just to clarify, are we talking about project descriptions that are like going out to the media or awards? Are we talking about website, like client facing? I guess client facing, right? Um, just probably that's that's probably the more important project description, right? Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about website project descriptions. I mean, yeah. that's a good place to start. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, again, there are so many ways. And I actually um, – so I've written like a project description toolkit which kind of step-by-step step takes you – through the whole process and I kind of came up with because you know Dave all these marketers love just telling like talking about you know tell your project story it's like cool how on earth do I do that what does that even mean you know like once upon a time like how so I came up with almost like um it's called the architecture story arc and it starts with like a hook um you know and this a story arc is used for all blockbuster movies you know novels everything and it's just applying that to the architecture project so you know start off with a hook which is your project title um and and maybe move away from just calling it you know brick house in you know Beecroft like name it something that has value like what did you do you know um created a community and wherever so um and then you know next is setting the scene so what was the client brief you know third is what was the conflict you know where what challenges did you come across um and then number four is you know reach that climax so what were your design solutions um and then number five is the resolution so what were the results so it's kind of like a whole kind of arc and the the biggest thing to keep in mind is you really want to use these projects to showcase your design thinking your design process um, because you want other prospective clients to read this and be like oh cool okay this is how they work you know yeah okay yeah so it's a so it's a window to that story and it's kind of and use the word hook there which is cool so hook them at the start but there's like something bringing conflict into play is not something you see very often in a project description (laughs) but it's like a it's a key element of story right like exactly. that there's some conflict there. So are we thinking like having a massive fight with the council <laughs> or are we thinking like conflict with some other maybe ephemeral kind of <laughs> like other sort of issue? I guess I guess anything can really, a lot of things can be a contact a, a conflict, right? Well, that's it. Like um, I guess deadlines being pushed out or something didn't, yeah, like uh, right. materials. It, it could be yep. any challenge. But That's what, right, supply chain shocks. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. You know, client changed their mind 643 times before. Yeah, you exactly. Know, <laughs> that would be great on the project description. Right. All the all the things the client did that were annoying. <laughs> no, um, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, and then actually in kind of segue to that is make sure if you can put a client testimonial. And I've been seeing this more and more of late. Um, so I think, Dave, we're all kind of collectively doing our job um, as marketing kind of in this space. But I've seen a lot more architects putting client testimonials in their project description, weaving them in or putting them at the end, um, which is great social proof to get more yeah. of the same clients on board. Yeah, and and I've I found a little trick. Like if I want to sell an architect on the idea of putting testimonials on their website, I call them client quotes. Ooh, I lo- <laughs> it, it goes like that. reviews are like lowbrow, testimonials are medium brow, and quotes are highbrow. So like if you want to convince yourself, just call it a quote. Um, <laughs> so quotes from your clients on your project pages and, and throughout your website are, are, are kind of uh, really really good. Um, yes, and that is interesting because it's good to see what the uh, what the person who like ends up actually living in the place has to say about it as well. I think it's interesting. Like, there's kind of a couple types of like testimonials as well. Like, it's there's testimonials about like the architect and the process, but what about like testimonials about the house? Like, you don't actually see that so often, right? If we're talking about um, 
like like the actual place that they ended up living in. <laughs> we, I see a lot of like the architect was great. They were fantastic to work with, like all that sort of thing, which is kind of more like a review. But it's actually not that common to see um, like phrases or, or sort of um, t- from the client's standpoint, like what they love about their the new place. Um, yeah. Like, do you think that there's value in like that approach too? Yeah, you know who does it really well um, is in between architecture. I'm just thinking of their projects. The way they've, um, it's almost like you can't stop reading till the end. Um, and they've woven oh, cool. these quotes um, about, yeah, the client experience living in the house, you know, and you want to see that before and after. So it's like before, you know, there was no storage space to put all the, the boys' shoes and now we walk in and the corridor's always clean because this and this has happened. So yeah, the more specific the experience, the better, because again, you're going to get that connection with someone who's potentially, that could be the thing that tips them over. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm in that exact situation. Um, yeah. I want that problem solved too. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, this is an interesting question. What's the difference between an about page and a biography? Um, oh, biography. Hey, do we see some biographies around the place? Um that's interesting. What, what's what's the difference? I guess like an about page. Well, I I guess like isn't an about page really just like a summary of like here's what I've done and all my things? I guess not, right? Like maybe you could explain kind of the difference between in approach between those two types of pages. Yes, yeah, so they're really different. So the about page is about your practice, um, but your biography is like those you know those single bio um, bios that you have for each individual teammate. Ah, uh, um, yeah, gotcha. So yeah, so with the bios, it really is quite personal, and I just. You know, sometimes architects just use it as a bit of an online, I call it an online filing cabinet of all their like awards and their accreditations and education. Like this sounds really harsh, but like, you know, a lot of people graduated the same year you did from design school. So that isn't something that's going to set you apart. So just write it in a skimmable list down the bottom. Like what, as a prospective client, what I want to hear about is your personal strengths. You know, I want to know you like even just add in a sentence about hobbies like create some sort of a connection so that if I pick up the phone I you know there's a bit of a human element to it I think yeah personal connection is really interesting so bios you're talking about the um yeah you're talking about like the section where it would normally say like and here's our team or like here's our director and here's our team and then we would see like those there but but you're saying it's it shouldn't just be like your uh your linkedin profile like compressed into a paragraph like that's not the purpose Mm -hmm. of that content because that content is as soon as you see that stuff you usually just like then start overlooking those paragraphs and the what i find like architects that tend to want to hide that stuff because they can tell no one's reading it is the font size gets smaller and smaller and smaller (laughs) until the bio text is like five point and then it's like what are we doing (laughs) whereas there, there are architects and there are some that where it's like, yeah, this is what I do on the weekend, which is, you know, maybe a bit gimmicky, but like there are good things that can be done on that personal side. Yeah. And then that becomes the best part of the page, right? Like that's the part you're like, oh, that's interesting. I kind of want to know what these, like what these guys do, like what they're, what they're, what they're personally like into, right? Yeah. And actually, um, David, like a really good example. Um, sorry, I have all these examples. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're, this is like what you're famous for is examples. <laughs> I'm like anti examples. My brain is just, please um, throw one but, at us. Yes. Yeah, so there's this Newcastle firm, which I, I think everyone should go check them out because I think they've done such a fantastic job with their branding. Like, um, but it's SDA architecture. So they're in Newcastle and 
they've um it's like a kind of a q a um so i really want to encourage also if you're an architect listening to this don't feel pressured to have your biography as just a paragraph you know do a funny q a or um i think they do like little kind of visuals um for each person um but even their headshots so like the photography um for each teammate flows into really nicely into the copy um very hard to explain um, in words, but just go check it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link, Dave, and you can put in the show notes. Oh, that's that's awesome. Okay, mm. cool. So they're really like making something good of that copy and using yes, it for a purpose. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Should we go to the next question? Yep, go for it. Okay. Do I need a blog? <laughs> Does an architecture website need a blog? I'll definitely have a take on this one. Go for it. I was about to say. Um, uh, do you want me to go first? Okay. Um, so, Okay. Like the word need is doing a lot of lifting there. I don't think you need a blog um, and I think you can get away with not having a blog that just fine. Um, but I think blogs are a good opportunity to, um, to, to, to create content that covers like other aspects of what your practice is about and your expertise and things that are like not directly covered by your projects. Right. So like, You've got your projects that are finished. You've got your projects that are in progress. And then what else do you have in terms of content that you can share? And sometimes you can make videos and films or you could do a podcast, like there's other mediums, but blogging is like a very good approachable um, format to get some of your ideas out there and to be kind of, to put some helpful stuff out there. And like, I find that um, when my clients go uh, work out, like here are some topics I would just like to create some kind of just like helpful advice around, like nothing too boring. We're not going like three types of lighting you need for your kitchen. Like we're not doing that sort of thing. But like um, a, a client just started a journal like a couple of weeks ago and she wrote an article explaining um, like like the concept of staging a residential project, like how that works. And then she spoke about like kind of the reasons that you might stage a project to do with budget and timeframes. And then she spoke about like one of her projects that were and showed the drawings and like, here's what we're going to do first. And then second, and she sent it out. And it's like, that's so cool to like learn about that through, through her blog. Um, not only that, but like, Obviously now when I put in how does staging work into Google, I, I reckon in a month from now, like her article will be on the first page because these topics are like not very widely covered or written about by architects. Like we we generally aren't writers. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and we're very credible when we write about architecture, we're going to outrank a lot of the time we will outrank even a big website like mm. house.com.au or something. Cause we're actually architects. So Google looks at that and goes, you're actually an authority on this subject. Mm. Like we will put you ahead of like the builders or the drafts people or whatever, not to, not to, not to whatever on their blogs, but you will, you'll be treated really well by Google. So look, that's why I think blogs are, that's my like spiel on blogs. What do you think, Nikita? Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly with you. I think um, the biggest thing is what you said earlier on, like whether you need one, I think there's nothing worse than going onto a website and seeing like, Last update, 2011. Like, I think that just shoots you. Oh, good point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just before, yeah, you even go down that road of whether you need one, are you going to be able to consistently maintain it? And then if if not regularly, then just take the date stamp off. No one needs to know when it was done. Um, but yeah, just always be adding some sort of a value to your reader. Like the first question you should be asking is like, what is your reader going to take away from this? And if you can't answer that question, then perhaps don't. Totally. Um, I, the way I think of it these, these days is that like, okay. Cause like when you think of it as a blog, 
again, this like highbrow, lowbrow thing, nobody talks about blogs anymore. We talk about journals. journals. And I personally talk about like a guides or resources section. Like I think I, th I try to think of it at least in terms of how we plan it out. I'm like, what if we just, rather than looking at this as like a news feed of just ongoing blog posts, what if it was just like a small collection of articles on like the main things that we want to like talk to our clients about, but we, w we don't want to have to talk to them in person about it. Like, let's just put together like a, a collection of articles that can cover like some of the things we care about or that we want to mm -hmm. like have a kind of a back and forth with clients about. Right. Um, and so I think of it more in terms of planning it out that way. Like when you look at it as a blog, as this sort of ongoing thing, it might start out with good intentions and then it kind of devolves to, oh, we got shortlisted or, oh, we got selected for this, uh, you know, this public commission, how exciting. And then it devolves to like new team member works here. And then it just sort of falls off from there. And it's like what you're saying, we haven't touched it in three years. But I sort of think of it now as not so much about it being like this chronological like thing. Because I think Instagram is kind of that. The newsletter is that. LinkedIn is that where it's like this thing just happened. But mm -hmm. that 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 news has an expiry date of about, you know, a week. Um, the blog, I think, should be more like long lasting stuff that sits there for a long time so that in two or three years, a potential client is still reading that article about like, um, you know, what you do to make projects like sustainable from the outset or something like some, some covering something that you do or part of your method or what you recommend. Um, so that when they then come to you as a client, they're like already aware of that and they're on board with it and they understand. And I think that's like the benefit of like doing content that way. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, yeah, don't need a blog. <laughs> Definitely don't need a blog. Um, this next question is a copywriting one. If I inject personality into my website copy, um, I'm, I'm worried that I won't come across as professional. Yeah, personality in copywriting coming across as not professional. That's interesting. What do you think? Yeah, and again, I think I touched on this before. Like you can have both. Um, I've seen some firms do such a good like, I mean, really, let's rewind. Like, what does professional even mean? I mean, everyone has their own definition of professional. You know, some people might have no problem with swearing and that, and that's just part of their personality and that's, you know, but I think we have to define what you what your boundaries are on professionalism. Um, but you just have to know that injecting a bit of personality into your copy, um, you know, being a little bit playful, if that's who you are, put it in there because, you know, you want your words to accurately reflect who you are. So there isn't a misalignment. I mean, I have come across sometimes, um, a few times actually, where architects have very like a loud kind of um, website um, in terms of like the visual design and that. And then I meet them or get on the phone and they're quite introverted. And I'm just, you think like that misalignment is a source of mistrust as well. You know, you think, oh, hang on a second. Like you're not what I expected. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, you want them just to have that accurate reflection, but you can have both. Um, there's a fantastic firm in New York called Moz, M-O-S, um, New York. And I've given this example a few times, um, but it is very, it's quite, confronting and quite a, I don't know it is a bit controversial the way they write their about page um but yeah I'll again go get put the link up Dave and people can go check it out but you'll see like even though they've written in just a very makes you a bit un, uneasy but you walk away and you don't feel like oh this was really unprofessional you think like oh, okay I've got a better understanding of who they are as a practice so yeah yeah I mean the thing I don't know I, I feel like um 
these days, if you're if you're trying to write your copy, um, you know, in a sort of a professional tone, odds are you're coming across like more like professional than like a bank, you know, like yeah. <laughs> these days, like brands are not professional. Like you should like um, that's not the image that they're trying to present. They're trying to present more like relatable and like I understand you and I like you can trust me because I'm like you. You know, it's more mm. of that kind of thing than going like something else. But like you know, I think architects we we do. Um, the way that we communicate in our projects, we we do have this sort of like quite um, firm approach, like in our emails often and the way that we are like writing, we want to be extremely precise in our language and not allow for much like ambiguity, not allow feeling to come into play because we want to write in this kind of almost clinical instructive sort of way a lot of the time. And so that tends to, to form a bit of like a like a neural pathway in our mind that we tend to like want to return to this like quite firm writing style. Um, But yeah, maybe, maybe you just need some icebreakers like um, Nikita was touching on earlier in terms of dear, dear such and such can be helpful using your voice. I think as soon as I throw an emoji into something, I'm immediately in a more like relaxed state of mind. (laughs) Like maybe we just got to like throw an emoji in there to start things off and then just like go from there. But yeah, um, it's interesting. Um, so the next question is about homepages, which is, you know, definitely an Akita topic for sure. Um, a lot of architects, uh, so what should go on my homepage? Um, I don't want it to kind of look too busy or feel too like overcrowded. Um, should I just put my copy on other pages and really just like leave the homepage like more or less blank except for some images, right? Should I just basically like put my portfolio on my homepage? And that seems like a common problem and people stress out about this idea of putting copy on their homepages. Like what's your, th- what's your thoughts? Um, okay. Well, I am biased. I am a copywriter. Yeah. But, um, please, <laughs> please, please do not leave your homepage blank. Like please don't just have a hero image and that's it. I mean, look, especially if your domain name doesn't even have the word architecture in it. Um, like how do I, I, I land on this, right? Even if I have been given it to, from a referral or whatever, but I mean, I think studies show that you've got eight seconds or something to capture someone's attention before they go off onto, you know, onto your competitor's tab if they're, if they're confused or frustrated. So what you want to do is, um, and that's why, I mean, it does work well. I mean, all the under the industries do it. I think we, for some reason, a lot of architects think that their work speaks for itself, but you do need words. Um, what those words should be, I think, is just like a tagline, um, just pretty much summarizing again what value you bring to a project you know or saying um we are an architecture you know studio um who does x for x so who do you do it for um or how do you do it you know just really kind of or you know you can get a bit creative i mean always remember that clarity crumps trumps sorry creativity (laughs) crumps yeah um but yeah like i think just in a few words, and again, I can give you a few examples of um, like a great some great architecture websites that have done this. But can, yeah, we, just, can you give us one good example of a great great homepage? Ooh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, there's um, I think oh there was this one. I think it's Runcible Studio. I think all they have is. Um, we are a curious architecture practice. That's all they have. And it just hooks you in. So you're like, hang on, why? And then they go on to saying, well, this is why we're curious. Like, this is what we do. You know, we, we start every project with the question, why, blah, blah. Um, another good one is Scaranish um, Studio. 
and they're an interior architecture studio and theirs is, you know, I think it's something like we believe nothing is more powerful than beautifully crafted spaces. So again, it's like they're just standing for something and that's what I want to see is I want to see on your homepage, what do you stand for? So the next question is, should our website talk about our process? Does anybody actually care about this? <laughs> okay, this is, uh, again, I recently posted about this. Um, not talking about your process is a huge mistake. Um, and the reason for this is it is such a powerful way to differentiate your practice. Um, I feel like gone are the days where architects can differentiate their firm, as you said, um, by years of experience or by awards or qualifications. You know, it's just not enough. Um, but you're like an architect's process is exactly that. It's yours, right? So um, I usually say, you know, like three steps. Um, spend some time interrogating your design process. You know, ask yourself, you know, when you meet a client, what's the first thing you do? You know, what's the second thing you do? Um, what are you looking for? What research do you do um, and in what ways you know all these things come so naturally um, to you you probably don't even realize you know you go well that's how we always do it but just spending time being like well no actually this is our process and no one else does it the way we do um, you know what tools do you use and why do you do things in a certain order um, you know for example if you say oh you know we brainstorm design concepts you know what does this look like you know what are the steps um, so I think that's step number one and then step number two is name your process and I I really encourage um, firms to do this you know say it the xyz studio method or the xyz studio way you know whatever it is um, you don't have to get fancy but just make it yours um, and then third I think is really on your website communicating it clearly um, and even though, you know, I'm all about words, I think sometimes a visual diagram is the best way to do this, you know, a flow chart or um, a Venn diagram of, of intersection of things, um, video, an illustration, whatever it is, just find a, a way to communicate this process clearly um, to prospective clients is, is great. Yeah, and that's such a good point about kind of re sort of making it um like your own brand, like branding it in your own way, like your process. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of, um, let's say like 40% or 30% of architects' websites have process pages or process sections. So that already just having one, you're kind of yes. in the minority now. So great, great job. But then I would say about three quarters of those process pages that are there just adhere to the, like the five Reba stages or like the five mm. AIA stages. So it'll say like concept design, design documentation. Like it's very um, like, and that is our process. So I guess mm. like you can't be blamed for going, like a lot of us do kind of work that way, but, but maybe there's like a way that you can kind of take it, take it on from a different angle or maybe restructure those steps or be more creative and original in terms of how you think about the different phases and stuff like that. Right. Like, is that kind of what you were yeah. getting at a little bit? Exactly. Or like name it instead of saying, you know, design yeah. development or research, be like deep dive, you know, yeah, like exactly. or like name it something creative. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. We're such marketing people, but hundred percent. Right? <laughs> there is a, there is a book uh, that I read that I found nailed this idea of making your own like proprietary kind of process better than like I've ever read. It was so clear to me when I, when I read it there, it's called built to sell. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's following the story of like a graphic design agency. And then they realized of all the things they do, they do this like logo design process really, really well. So they create this sort of unique 
system that they follow and then they pitch it to clients and then they succeed from there. But it's a really good example of how it's you're not just doing the normal process everyone's doing, you're doing your own version of it, which is saying that, you know, give it a name and, and take take kind of ownership of it. And people are very interested to learn about that stuff if you if you do. Um, cool. So uh, this is an interesting question. Um, that I, I actually a few other people have asked me this, but as as our practice grows, um, I want I want clients to re- realize that they're gonna, not just going to be working with me, the director. They're going to be working with like our team. It's going to be you know, and that and um, that I want the practice to be more than just about me, the director. I want it to be about the team. Um, yeah, that's an interesting challenge that I see a lot of small sort of practices dealing with as they get like a little bit bigger. What what would be maybe some like I guess some practical things or, or or one main practical thing that they could do that would help to maybe like maybe de-emphasize the director a little bit as the hero and sort of raise up everybody else? What do you think? Yes, I've got a couple of ideas. I think the first one is yeah, as I said before, make sure you have a page with team biographies. Um, put everyone like I mean I've even seen funny ones where they put like the studio dog up there you know but have everyone who's part of the team um you know your bookkeeper like anyone that any client might have contact with put them all up um and have everyone have an equal kind of bio written about them so everyone is part of this team and it's not just the directors and that so that's one thing um then on that biography page I often like to put you know um, meet the team um or something like you know we're a team of creative think, thinkers, ambitious doers and, and passionate experts or something like that, then dot, 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 and then you have the team. So almost like a, a context of really driving that point home of that we are a team and it isn't just the, the directors. Um, another thing is um, with your about page, don't lead with the first sentence being whatever studio was found in Founded by this person. Yeah, 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 yeah. After completing her university degree <laughs> at the AA, she, yeah, yeah exactly. So don't, you know, if you really have to put that kind of the founding or how the origin story, <laughs> be like where we started, make a little subheading, chuck it in there, or put it right down the bottom of your about page in italics or something. Um, but do not lead with that unless that is yeah. a really big part of your story and that person is super, super, you know, yeah. forefront and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Um, so let's see, what question do we have next? Um, oh, this is a cool one. Are there any, like, are there any things on websites or pages that um, that you, that architects' websites are usually missing or things that, like, we don't have that people in other industries tend to have more of on their websites? So we've probably touched on a couple of those different examples, right? But um, the, the the question said, for, ex- for example, frequently asked questions or quotes from clients or things like that. So um, are there any that come to mind for you in terms of like missing missing pieces? Yes. Um, okay, where do I start? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe um, just one or two major yeah. ones. No. So two, two, one, two. Um, one is newsletter call to actions. I just see like oh, subscribe yeah. here to our newsletter. I'm like, okay. You need to be a bit more specific. You know, what? why on earth would someone subscribe to your newsletter and get bombarded in the inbox? Like you have to tell them why. What are they going to get? What's the value? When should they expect? Like how often, you know, are you going to be emailing them every day or it's just a bit of a, a bit of a Russian roulette just chucking an email. So just, yeah, 
be very specific, you know, sign up here for regular updates or free guides or whatever it is, but what are they signing up for? My second thing is contact pages. I think these often get left behind and people just, um, or architects just chuck up a a Google map and then the details. Um, Really encourage you to keep this consistent tone of voice, make it a bit friendly, you know, put an image up there. Don't just leave this page because this is and could be the last impression of the site. You know, they either fill out an email form or they send you an email. So this is their lasting impression. So put a client testimonial on this. You know, there are no rules um, on the contact page. But, yeah, definitely don't just leave it um, to the last minute and, yeah, don't forget it. So contact pages, (laughs) newsletter call to actions, those are really, really good ones. Hmm, Let me think, what else is kind of missing? You know, it comes back to that previous question. I find so often pictures of the team are missing and I think Mm. that's like a really, like a really big red flag. And when I, when I actually ask like, why is that? I usually find out really bad things <laughs> that I wish I didn't know um, about like, oh, well, we have such high turnover at our at our company that, um, you know, it was such high churn in our team that it just, we're, we never like keep up in terms of photos. I'm like, okay, that's bad. Or, um, you know, just, oh, just a whole bunch of different issues can come up. Or we try to create the impression that we're big, but there's actually only two of us, you know, so things like that. And it's like, okay, like definite issues there. Um mm. I think like not seeing the people behind the company is, is a problem, but I wouldn't say that that's a super common thing. I guess, I guess I see it sometimes, but I always see directors. I don't really see teams. So I will say team mm-hmm. photos are definitely going to be something there. Um, I think, yeah, I think, I think frequently asked questions are also something that, um, you know, as a format can also be really, really interesting and a good way for you to fill in some gaps that you would be being asked about, like, you know, in person or on the phone, you can just kind of get that process going a little bit easier. But yeah, we've touched on so many different things, whether it's like process stuff, like a lot of websites don't have that. Um, good, like project stories, like a lot of that is missing. Um, so yeah, there's quite a bit there. Um, In the past, our practice always tried to put out social media content that was designed to get likes and followers, but we found that it was kind of a bit of a never-ending journey that often lost sort of led to disappointment. Now we simply focus on curating our posts so that when they're looked at as a group, they'll be perceived well by potential clients because we think that they're probably looking at our Instagram before they look at our website nowadays. Should we be putting more emphasis on sharing content that's designed to influence how people perceive our company or should we be putting more emphasis on like trying to get likes and followers and stuff like that? Very, very interesting question. <laughs> it is and it's probably a bit more of a Dave question but I'll, I'll give it a go. Yeah, um, go for it. So I think, yeah, look, at the end of the day, there is a lot of emphasis and focusing on these metrics um, but really it goes back to this idea of you just need, you don't need millions of clients. You just need a handful of really exceptional ones, right? So social media, um, you know, as I said before, there needs to be some sort of a consistency. So perception like this question, you know, this um, it talks about this perception of what you're putting on social media but branding is perception. So whatever you're putting out on social media, it has to be aligned with um, your your greater marketing strategy, I think. I mean, 
you could probably do this uh, question better justice, Dave. I might just no. <laughs> look, I mean, I think like I think that's um. It, it sounds like this. The person asking this question felt like a little bit kind of defeated by maybe not getting those likes or those followers, right? And there's sort of a little bit of a resignation maybe in the question, um, which I get. Um, it's like going to be a mix, right? Like you you want to put out content that you think is like I wouldn't obsess over how your your social media channel looks like as a whole because like sure some people are coming and looking at it for a few seconds but and sort of digesting it and going like oh what's this firm about like that's fine and like no problem there but um you know you want to be just thinking about like the people that are following you and posting stuff that you think will be interesting that makes sense for your brand and i don't think you really want to be like overthinking it too much anyway right like if you've got interesting stuff to share just share it um don't overthink it don't overcomplicate it too much um share stuff more freely i think is always a good thing to do because people are very like sort of um very like closed off on social media. So yeah, look, I wouldn't worry too much about it either way. Just try to get to a place where what you are sharing is maybe a bit more natural. Like I struggle with it. Everyone, it's a difficult thing for everyone to deal with. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be trying to like curate the perfect feed and uh, think that some people are looking at it, judging it. We want them to like perceive us well. Like that's just kind of a bit weird. But um, so Nikita, thank you so much for, we've hit the end of our time. You've got to go. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, answering so many questions. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Dave. That's just You're mine. You're open book, heaps of amazing examples. And if anybody has more questions, please send them in. And um, maybe Nikita will come back for another episode at some point. We can answer more questions. Perfect. Thanks so much, Dave. Thanks. That was my conversation with Nikita Morell. If you'd like to learn more about Nikita, you can visit nikitamorell.com or connect with her on LinkedIn where she posts some pretty amazing updates. You can also visit vanityprojects.com to see the full show notes for this episode and see links to the websites and resources that we mentioned during the episode. Before you go, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Less than 50% of you are subscribed to this thing. So please do so that you can hear all of the amazing guests that I've got coming up on the show. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you.